الجزيرة بودكاست For years, people in Turkey had been talking about the big one, an earthquake that could devastate a densely populated city. On Monday this week, there was a big one. The quake, which had a magnitude 7.8, was felt up to 600 miles away, and there are fears the number of dead could rise sharply. And a second one. We just got word of a powerful 7.5 magnitude aftershock. Rescue teams are digging through rubble of collapsed buildings, bucket by bucket, in a desperate search for survivors. It is a nightmare. It is. It is apocalyptic. It is. We are in a in a war zone without the violence. As feared, the destruction was widespread, and the death toll has gone up by thousands every day. As we record, it's now past 20,000. I didn't feel like this any time in my life. Like, really, it's like the hereafter. The region struck by the earthquake has been on edge for over a decade. Both sides of the border, Turkey's southeast and Syria's northwest, have been destabilized by war and displacement. You know, this earthquake is a perfect storm. It took a natural disaster to get the world's attention. But will this troubled region finally get the help it needs? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. It was the most powerful earthquake to hit Turkey and the region in nearly a century. And we heard it play out in voice notes from people who were there. I felt like a a lot of noise and something was dropping. When it struck, just past 4 a.m. local time, Amar, like most people, was at home in bed. He lives in the southeastern city of Gaziantep, and he works for an NGO there. He described the moment he felt the quake start. So the first thing, I think, came to my mind that someone is trying to rubbing the house. And I pulled the eye mask off and was ready to fight. But then was shocked that the whole building is shaking and the whole apartment is shaking. It was a magnitude 7.8 earthquake. It lasted around a minute. I've been in earthquakes before, but never like this one. So usually they are for a few seconds and they go. And that's how I thought in the beginning. But then like it went harder and kept going. So whenever it was slowing, I would be a bit relieved, but would keep going again. And for a moment at the end of it, I was like, this is never ending. And the whole bending is going to collapse. That was like my actual feeling at that moment. Like it's not going to end. It's going to collapse. Imad was also in Gaziantep at his home in a 13-floor apartment with his mother, two children, and pregnant wife. They planned to stay in the building after the earthquake. But after neighbors said the bottom floors were heavily damaged, they moved outside for safety. When everyone finally got down the stairs, they found more chaos. Imad sent us this voice note from a park where they were staying. It's snowing here, started to rain heavily. The roads are blocked. People are really scared. It's, it became dark. We don't have plan. We don't know what to do. Less than 10 hours later, the second earthquake hit. 
Inayat and his family went to their car as the only place for shelter and a bit of warmth. Elsewhere in the city, Ammar spent hours checking on his family and friends before going home for a few moments of rest. We tried to sleep, but every time I would try to close my eyes, a new aftershock would come, like a new shake would come. Wasn't that strong, but was not stable. There have been hundreds of aftershocks throughout the week. Like, it was always shaking, like in, in the matter of five minutes max, like every five minutes would be a new shake. Both Amar and Imad are Syrian. They've lived in Turkey for years after fleeing the war in their home country. The epicenter of the biggest tremor was in Gaziantep province, where they live. Over the past 12 years of the Syrian war, this region alone has taken in about 500,000 refugees, including Ammar and Imad. And in Turkey, they've endured more conflict and violent attacks. The Turkish government is trying to cope with multiple security threats. There have been various attacks linked to ISIL, Turkey's dealing with the spillover of the war in Syria, and the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, has targeted Turkish security forces in the past. Now, everyone who lives there has been struck by another catastrophe. It's one of the most active seismic zones in the world. Last year, it recorded more than 22,000 earthquakes. That's according to Turkey's emergency response agency. We are surrounded with different fault systems, which are quite active. Therefore, almost all areas in Turkey are prone to earthquakes. That's Alper Ilki. He's the head of the Turkish Earthquake Foundation and a professor at Istanbul Technical University. He spent his career thinking about how to prevent earthquakes from causing large-scale destruction, what he calls seismic design. The problem is not really on the seismic design. Turkey had good quality of seismic design codes since 1940. What I would say, the codes were quite similar to their counterparts in different countries, like in Europe or in the United States or in Japan. There was not a very big difference. The problem was basically in terms of the understanding of the people and the construction sector system, which didn't have a proper inspection mechanism. The event that put this into focus, and that still lives in many Turkish people's minds, was another earthquake in 1999. It happened on the other side of the country, near the town of Izmit, about an hour's drive outside of Istanbul. More than 17,000 people were killed. Fire and smoke choked the skies the morning after a massive catastrophic earthquake rocks Izmit, Turkey, killing thousands and trapping even more. At that time, there was almost no inspection, actually. There was no engineers on site, so the construction was done very improperly. I mean, some are totally improper. I mean, they have three more story than designed, and then some has concrete quality less than half of what it should be. The reason is not really some bad intentions. That's just a matter of unconsciousness, actually. They use the same amount of materials in the mixture, but they use, for example, a lot of water in the concrete mixture to have a more fluid concrete. This makes the concrete quality half, concrete strength half. So even a small earthquake can cause collapse of such kind of weak structures. New laws were passed after 1999 to improve safety codes and public awareness. 
Programs were created to identify poorly built structures, and a tax was introduced to help fund earthquake preparedness. But Professor Ilkey says that while those changes helped, they weren't enough. And this time, Turkey has learned other difficult lessons. We are not totally ready. There are many problems about the roads, the transportation, the electricity, the phone lines. This earthquake reminded us that the catastrophe can be in a very larger scale and distributed, which changed all plans, actually. The first 72 hours after a disaster are crucial for finding survivors. But the latest earthquakes destroyed transportation lines, communications, and supply centers, making it even harder for emergency crews to reach areas quickly, especially in bad weather. You don't need a center in some place, but you need 10 centers in different cities. You don't need to make open just one road, but you have to open many roads. And the winter conditions is, again, a very critical problem, which makes the duration shorter that you have to reach people and save them because they will be freezing under that very cold weather. Of course, there are many things to learn, particularly in terms of disaster management. Turkey's government has now declared a three-month state of emergency for all 10 affected provinces. Meanwhile, people in Turkey found access to Twitter was temporarily limited on Wednesday. The app was one of the lifelines many people on the ground used to share their locations and call for help, as well as share frustration about the slow response. People here want to know why they're still out on the streets. They want to know why they are still huddling around fires to keep warm and why the aid is taking so long to arrive. The government met with Twitter officials to discuss misinformation. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has criticized what he called lies and slander and pledged to devote all necessary resources to relief and recovery. With an election in May, the stakes are high. Our work will continue until we have saved every life that we can in the rubble and until we are sure there is nothing else we could do further. We are mobilizing every possible operation, and many thousands of people have been transferred to each and every province to help. But across the border in northern Syria, there is no government making similar pledges. After the break, we'll hear how people who've survived a brutal war are once again being confronted with a humanitarian crisis, with little help on the way. On this week's episode of Essential Middle East Podcasts, find out why people in Indian-administered Kashmir are worried about the new digital IDs. Since the earthquakes, thousands of emergency workers from around the world have been sent to southeastern Turkey to join in the rescue efforts. But there are other aid workers who've been in the region for years. My name is Zahir Sahlul. I'm the president and co-founder of MedGlobal, which is a medical NGO that provides healthcare in disaster regions. I'm a critical care specialist also in Chicago. Dr. Sahlul has been helping in northern Syria for more than a decade. During the worst of the war, he was virtually helping with surgeries. He's seen firsthand the suffering people here have faced from both natural and man-made causes. This area has been hit by disaster after disaster for the past 12 years. This area has 4.2 million people. Half of them are internally displaced from other parts of the country. 
The only access to this area is through the Turkish border, two small border crossing that everything goes into them. The United Nations says roads leading to Bab al-Hawa have been damaged or closed. It's the only crossing that can be used according to a UN resolution. With the backing of Russia, the Syrian government has ensured all aid goes through Damascus. And it's insisting this should continue now too as it struggles with the disaster. The area is a major part of Syria that's not under the control of Bashar al-Assad's government. Who does control it has been piecemeal for years. And you can find Syrian and foreign forces of all stripes, including both Turkey's and Russia's, with civilians caught in the middle. As you know, Russia has been blocking to open more border crossing to northern Syria for political reason. They want the Assad regime to control the aid so that way he can force his will on the population in this area that he considers enemies. This is the same area that had also several chemical weapons attacks in the past few years. You had the COVID pandemic that added to the hardship. You have a huge shortage of doctors and nurses and medical supplies. You have very primitive infrastructures. Houses were not built to weather earthquake in this area. And then you have economic collapse and now you have an earthquake. So you can imagine the damage. There is no electricity in northern Syria. There is no water in northern Syria. There is no roads that uh, can be used. The, the search and rescue, which is the most important thing at this stage, people are using their bare hands because there is no heavy machinery and there is no diesel fuel to operate the, the, the heavy machinery that are required for removing the rubbles from big buildings that collapse. I mean, whatever I can say, it's that the situation is worse. Yeah. So knowing all of that and knowing the work that you and your team have been doing pre-earthquake, what went through your mind when you heard that the earthquake had hit? I wanted to check on my family first. So um, my family live in a city called Homs in Syria. And I, I called my mom and she said that we felt it, uh, but our house was not affected. They were scared. My mom and dad are elderly. And, but uh, luckily nothing happened in terms of the injuries. Uh, they were safe. You know, frankly, um, we got used to crisis in Syria because it's been going on for 12 years. One time it's a major attack uh, with missiles. One time it's barrel bomb. One, one time it's a siege. But this is different. So it's that's just the scale of the crisis by itself is unimaginable. People think that, you know, you have an earthquake and now you can send suddenly these supplies and, doc and doctors and nurses to the area. We cannot do that in northern Syria. It's cut off from the outside world. It's like a big prison. The only access to them is a small border crossing from Turkey. You cannot access them from Damascus because the Syrian regime will not allow humanitarian aid to get into this area. It's, they consider them enemies. And the disaster hasn't stopped the fighting. Just hours after the earthquake, Syrian government forces reportedly bombed a town near the border. Making things even worse, many of the aid workers, like the team working with Dr. Sahlul, were based out of Gaziantep or across the border in Syria. Almost all of them became homeless overnight. We're trying to see what we can do to relocate them. <sighs> yeah. Many humanitarian workers lost family members. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's very devastating mentally also to the people trying to help, yeah. but at the same time, they need help. 
they need uh, food. There is no food in, in Ghazi Antab. They need transportation. There is, there is no clean water in Ghazi Antab. Our staff, the team that overseeing the operation, don't have houses to go to. Our lead doctor in Syria, Dr. Mustafa Laido, decided to move to the refugee camp in Syria because it's safer. He has four children and his wife, and they decided to live in a tent in a refugee camp in Syria because it's safer to live in a tent right now. So um, I mean, it, 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 is, it is overwhelming, frankly, and I think the international community does not understand the scale of the crisis and its impact on the population in northern Syria. Do you think that aid might make it to those who need it inside Syria, especially given the fact that the earthquake is now hindering that ability, there's a political situation, and Turkey was such a big donor and facilitator of that, which is now dealing with its citizens as well? There is a system in place for many NGOs that they have warehouses so they can tap into it if they know that there is funding is coming. So... These warehouses have medical supplies and, and food and shelter for the next three months or so. So hopefully by that time, things will be a little bit easier in terms of logistics and supply chain. Of course, putting pressure on the great country of Turkey to keep the border open and also beg the Russians uh, and the Syrian government to open more border crossings so more aid can uh, be directed to these areas. We've talked about the challenges of people in Syria. What are the challenges facing Syrians who are living inside Turkey? Almost all Syrian refugees in Turkey feel that they are between the rock and the hard place. They cannot go back to Syria because it's not safe and there's no dignity. They're not going to find jobs. There's no education in Syria. There's no stability. They will be bombed. They will be tortured. And they cannot go to Europe because Europe has closed its door to the Syrian refugees after we had one million of them when during the peak of the refugee crisis. So they're stuck. And now they are impacted by the earthquake. 3.5 million Syrian refugees are living in southern Turkey, in Ghazi Antab and Antakya and Kilis and, and these cities that impacted really hard with the earthquake. I don't know. I mean, you know, the slogan the Syrians had throughout this crisis is that we have no one but God. Mm, yeah. And I think that's the situation that described their plight in Turkey. But Dr. Sahlul says there's one positive to come out of this tragedy. People are talking about Syria again. The first time that President Biden mentioned Syria is yesterday in a tweet after two years of crisis of being a president. So we appreciate that, you know, this is probably the silver lining of the earthquake. A couple of years ago, I read an article was written by the executive director of World Vision that Syria needs an earthquake. Wow. He said that one week after the earthquake of Haiti, his organization received more funding and donation than seven years of Syrian crisis. So this attention is much needed in Syria. But as I've mentioned, Many of that attention is directed to Turkey because Turkey is a member of NATO. It has a stable government. It's close to Europe. There's many countries that want to support Turkey itself because it's devastated by this earthquake. Less attention is going to Syria and it should be the other way around. Our experiences with disaster response in Syria is short term. You know, people pay attention for a few days, send whatever uh, stuff needed 
they write articles and tweet about it. And then until the next disaster, that will happen anywhere in the world. And then people ignore Syria. So I hope it's not the case this time. And that's The Take. For resources on how to help, check out the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Miranda Lynn with Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, Chloe K. Lee, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Our engagement producers are Andy Greiner and Adam Abugad. Alexander Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs> 